Welcome to This Week in the History of Psychology for March 4th to 10th. This is your host, Christopher Green of York University in Toronto, Canada. In this episode, we'll first take a brief look at some of the most important events that happened during This Week in Psychology's past. Then we'll have our feature interview with Professor Dorothy Ross on the life and career of the founder of the American Psychological Association, Granville Stanley Hall. Finally, we'll celebrate the birthdays of some important psychologists. All this and more on this installment of This Week in the History of Psychology. On March 4th, in 1784, King Louis XVI of France appointed a royal commission to study Franz Mesmer's cures using animal magnetism. The commission, chaired by Benjamin Franklin, included chemist Antoine Lavoisier and Joseph Guillotin, and concluded that mesmerism was useless. Also on March 4th, in 1746, the drug diphenhydramine, better known by its trade name Benadryl, was approved for use by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Diphenhydramine is primarily used as an antihistamine, but in mental health settings is prescribed as an anxiolytic and to combat the Parkinsonism that is created by other psychopharmaceuticals. For March 5th, in 2002, the first state law authorizing psychologists to prescribe psychopharmaceuticals was signed by New Mexico Governor Gary Johnson. The legislative effort was spearheaded by the New Mexico Psychological Association and the American Psychological Association Practice Directorate. For March 6th, in 1876, Charles Sanders Peirce purchased a notebook in Cologne and recorded the first set of color vision observations. Peirce's results were reported in the April 1877 issue of the American Journal of Science and may have been the first American publication in scientific psychology. For March 7th, in 1955, a federal commission headed by former President Herbert Hoover reported that over half of the one and a half million hospital beds in the U.S. were devoted to the care of people with mental illness, making mental illness the single greatest U.S. health problem. For March 8th, in 1948, the first list of APA-approved programs in clinical psychology based on site visits and published criteria was selected by a committee meeting in Chicago and headed by David Schakow. 36 graduate schools were on the first list. For March 9th, in 1907, the first U.S. eugenic sterilization law was enacted by the Indiana legislature. The law provided for sterilization of, quote, confirmed criminals, idiots, imbeciles, and rapists, end quote. The law was invalidated by the Indiana State Supreme Court in 1921, but replaced by another in 1923. For March 10th, in 1926, the first of the Letters from Jenny was written by Jenny Masterson. The letters provided a case study of abnormal personality that became the subject of articles in a book by Gordon Allport.
On March 8, 1883, Johns Hopkins University philosophy instructor Granville Stanley Hall was given $250 by the school's trustees to set up a formal experimental psychology research laboratory on campus, the first of its kind in the U.S., but for William James's class demonstration laboratory at Harvard. This was only the first of a number of important institutional accomplishments that would mark Hall's career. Later, he would launch the American Journal of Psychology, found the American Psychological Association, and arrange for Sigmund Freud to make his first and only trip to America, as well as being a significant child psychologist in his own right. On the line to talk to us about Hall's astonishing life and career is Dr. Dorothy Ross of Johns Hopkins University. Professor Ross is the author of G. Stanley Hall, The Psychologist as Prophet, published by the University of Chicago Press in 1972, and also The Origins of American Social Science, published by Cambridge in 1991. Professor Ross, could you tell us first a bit about G. Stanley Hall's background? Uh, where did he come from, and, and where did he get his education? Well, he uh, was born in 1844, and uh, he comes from western Massachusetts, a small farming town called Ashfield, and he went to what would have been the uh, nearest college, Williams College. Uh, he came from a family of pious congregationalists. They were ambitious for him, and he was very ambitious. They wanted him to be a minister, and he went on to... Union Theological Seminary, where he got a degree in 1869. Paul was never, I think, wanted to be a minister. He was more interested in studying philosophy. Philosophy was perhaps the, the leading subject for a student in college or graduate school in that day. So he uh, proposed to go on and, and study philosophy, and the best place in the world to do that was in Germany. So he went on to Berlin and was very interested in Hegel and evolutionary theory, and gradually his, the focus of his interest moved to what was then a new and very exciting kind of topic in philosophy called physiological psychology. So Hall taught for a while. He looked for a teaching job in philosophy and got one at Antioch College, and he thought he'd better go on and get more specialized training. And so he went to Harvard University to study with William James and uh, was awarded the first doctorate of philosophy in the subject of psychology uh, in the United States. That was in 1878. Well, now, after he completed his, his Ph.D. at Harvard, Hall uh, returned to Germany for further study. Uh, psychologists often think of this as the time that he trained in Wundt's uh, newly founded psychology laboratory, but he actually spent much of his time uh, studying physiology with Hermann Helmholtz and Karl Ludwig and wasn't all that impressed with Wundt's work. Is that right? That is right. And he wrote back at the time, I, I think, to James that uh, he found the, uh, the methods uh, much more rigorous in uh, Ludwig's laboratory and Dubois-Raymond's laboratory than he did in, uh, in Wilhelm Wundt's. If, if it were true, it wouldn't be terribly surprising because, of course, Wundt was having to figure out how to perform experiments on people about what was he understood it going on inside their minds, whereas the physiologists had a somewhat easier job of it. At this point in time, Paul wanted to think of himself as following this new scientific path and therefore as following the most rigorous and the purest form of it, which would have been uh, in doing laboratory work in physiological psychology. And when he came back to the United States, he 
wanted to present himself as the champion of science. But uh, I say it's kind of ironic because, in fact, that stage in his career, while it was a fruitful one for a few years, ended rather quickly. Well, now, upon his return to the U.S. from from his study of physiology and from Wundt's lab, um, Hall gave some lectures on a new discipline that was called pedagogy in Boston, mm -hmm. and, and that caught the attention of the Johns Hopkins University president. Could you tell us a bit about how Hall landed the Johns Hopkins professorship in philosophy and what he accomplished while he was there? Hall was um, looking for a proper position in the United States. I think we have, it's important to remember that this is a period of transition in American higher education. Uh, through most of the 19th century, there really wasn't anything like a modern university of the sort that existed in, in Germany, uh, in the United States. Uh, most of these institutions were colleges, really, and these colleges were really under the control of uh, religious denominations. The transformation of these colleges and the universities took took some time. There was considerable tension in this period between kind of older style of uh, university administration and religious concern on the one hand and these newer subjects and um, interest in scientific research on the other. So Hall was kind of caught between these, these concerns and caught in these tensions, and it wasn't very easy for him to find a position. So he felt rather fortunate when he was able to get an instructorship at Johns Hopkins University in 1882. Of course, part of what attracted the university president, Daniel Gilman, to him was his interest in psychology and also his demonstration that this new psychology could be of, of use in pedagogy and in child rearing and things of that sort, making it practical and popular. When Hall got to Johns Hopkins, uh, there were two other lecturers in philosophy already there, one George Sylvester Morris and Charles Saunders Peirce, who was a philosopher trained as a uh, scientist and mathematician. Gilman and Hopkins were going to make only one permanent appointment of a professorship, and so one of those three was going to get the job. Peirce would seem to have been the person most likely to get it in terms of his later intellectual reputation, a very original mind, but a difficult person, one who flouted the moral conventions of the day. When Gilman uh, kind of put it all together, he simply fired Peirce, and indeed Peirce never had another academic position mm -hmm. uh, for the remainder of his life. It's one of the great, uh, one of, actually one of the great tragedies of 19th century intellectual life. Morris, uh, on the other hand, uh, was not a favorite of, of uh, Gilman's, and Hall ended up with the appointment. He uh, started a laboratory and engaged in some research himself, although it was never his major interest. And while he was there, he founded the American Journal of Psychology in 1887. Now, just a few years after getting the Johns Hopkins professorship in, um, in 1888, he was offered the presidency of another newly founded university, Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. But mm -hmm. there he found a string of both successes and setbacks, yes? Well, he certainly did. And uh, one would have to say some of them were of his own making. He became interested in the uh, project of uh, Clark. 
he had when he heard about a Worcester businessman who had left Worcester, Massachusetts, who had kind of left town and made good, made a great deal of money, and uh, wanted to come back and found a college that would uh, kind of be a kind of benefaction to the city that he had grown up in. And it was Hall who who convinced Clark, rather against his will, to found, instead of a kind of local college, to found a uh, graduate university very much on the model of Johns Hopkins, brought together a very talented faculty. And in the same years, he founded another journal, the Pedagogical Seminary, and kind of brought people together for the first meeting of the American Psychological Association. But as it turned out, he, he wasn't really able to keep that initial Clark University foundation together. Jonas Clark turned out to be very jealous of control of the purse and kind of balked at the cost of the university. The faculty became very dissatisfied, and they all uh, very quickly left, actually. Uh, the University of Chicago turned out to benefit from collapse of Clark University. William Rainey Harper, the first president at the University of Chicago, kind of heard about the troubles at Clark and appeared on campus himself and literally hired the faculty away. So um, Paul was left with um, a very small operation, and Jonas Clark was disaffected at that point, and uh, as he, when he died, he left uh, in his will that uh, Stanley Hall was to have nothing to do with an undergraduate college and, and gave most of his money to start an undergraduate college at Clark. Well, now, Hall was probably best known in terms of research for his work on child development. Indeed, he was the founder of the child study movement in the uh, U.S., and he brought the term adolescence into popular usage. Um, could you tell us a bit about the character of this work? Yes, he really uh, reoriented his, his psychological program around evolutionary theory um, in the early 1890s. It, it was really as, as uh, Clark collapsed and as I think he focused more and more on the fact that his metier was really not the psychological laboratory. He put other people um, in charge. He, he maintained a psychological laboratory at Clark, but put other people in charge of it. He realized that his, um, his interests were really broadly biological. He uh, developed what he came to call genetic psychology. He was interested in developmental ideas. So he, some of that began from his work uh, with child study. Some of the earliest psychologists, in fact, had begun to, to focus on early childhood and often to study their own children. And Hall was aware of some of those uh, studies very early. And he also was aware of the great interest that teachers had and educational scholars had in, in applying the insights of psychology to educational problems. And he realized he had a large audience and the possibility of large practical applications. And so he, um, he really, his interests turned in that direction and he developed a more broadly based kind of psychology that was interested, that focused on development, on psychopathology, on 
uh, critical stages in the individual life cycle. Topics that have been marginal to the laboratory-oriented academic psychology earlier on, but that had practical applications and, and had a kind of personal urgency for himself and for a wider popular audience that he, uh, that he addressed. His idea of evolutionary psychology, biological psychology, was not one that we might think of today that's based on a Darwinian logic. His was based on the idea of recapitulation, that the development of the individual recapitulates the evolutionary development of the species. And so he looked for nascent periods, he called them, at which instincts or interests or aptitudes would appear in individual development uh, that would provide a kind of blueprint for uh, education and child rearing. And uh, he enlisted a great many uh, teachers in that effort to provide him with data to observe their own students, mothers to observe their own children, and so on. And of course, you know, he developed survey that they uh, forms that they would fill out. As one would expect, it produced a, a great mass of heterogeneous materials. And, none of which actually produced the blueprint he was looking for, but it did arouse a lot of interest. Adolescence was the other major field in which he contributed quite a bit, and he wrote a book called Adolescence, which, which really helped to define uh, that period of life as a kind of separate stage of life, and he thought of it as a period of uh, stress and struggle and of great feeling, and he defined it very much in terms of his evolutionary and genetic ideas. It was a period in which primitive instincts, primitive feelings bloomed, reappeared in the life cycle. It was uh, a period in which sexuality became more important, also in which religious feelings uh, developed. By emphasizing the importance of adolescence in the uh, life cycle of the average person and and particularly the average man, I think, the average boy, young boy, man, he was, um, on the one hand, doing something that was quite liberating, making room in the male life cycle for primitive energies that perhaps had been uh, marginalized in modern life, making room for characteristics that the most people thought of as feminine, that is to say, feelings, sexuality. And so in some ways, he's um, kind of making room for widening and making room for these things in the male life cycle. On the other hand, other uh, people have looked at this and said, well, adolescence is, after all, a limited period, and the point of all this for all was to channel these energies into adult life. These religious feelings, he said, often culminated in a kind of orthodox conversion experience. He was interested in, uh, in sublimating sexuality, turning it into more idealized, uh, non-sexual channels. So it's, there's a kind of ambivalence there, a very deep ambivalence, to uh, an audience that was also very ambivalent about, uh, about these issues. So what do you think Hall's main legacy is? How do you think American psychology today would be different if he had never risen to prominence? Well, that's, that's a hard question to ask. He's, uh, because he's in 
certainly wasn't the only person doing uh, what he did, uh, and uh, others kind of moved along these lines too. But certainly, I, I think he had an important effect in, in the initial stage of organizing a kind of psychology that tried to model itself on uh, on the natural sciences. And I think he was a very important uh, person, and very shortly in um, broadening American psychology out from that base into the very diverse kind of discipline that exists today. The many divisions of the American Psychological Association are kind of a um, an indication of the many different paths that psychology has taken in uh, in the United States. He trained many students like uh, Arnold Gisell and Terman and others who he took these different paths and. Um, certainly had some influence uh, in, uh, in that direction. Well, thank you very much for this. We have been talking to Professor Dorothy Ross of Johns Hopkins University about the life and career of Granville Stanley Hall. Uh, Professor Ross is the author of G. Stanley Hall, The Psychologist as Prophet, published by Chicago in 1972, and of The Origins of American Social Science, published by Cambridge in 1991. I have to apologize for some of the sound quality there. The connection with Professor Ross was uh, rather quiet at times. I turned it up as much as I could. I hope you were able to enjoy it. If you'd like to read more about G. Stanley Hall's theory of adolescence, you might look at the August 2006 issue of the journal History of Psychology, which was a special issue devoted to a reappraisal of that work by Hall. The guest editors of the issue were Jeffrey Jensen Arnett and Hamilton Cravens, and in addition to articles by the two editors, there is an article by David E. Leary, one by James Eunice, one by William Gravener, and one by Jean Brooks-Gunn and Anna Duncan Johnson. And now it's time for birthdays. For March 4th, in 1888, Howard Long was born. Long was an early African-American psychologist who earned his PhD under G. Stanley Hall in 1916. Also on March 4th in 1916, Hans Isink was born. Isink's factor analytic theory of personality had as its main components the factors introversion-extroversion and stability-instability. His noteworthy 1952 review of studies of the effectiveness of psychotherapy concluded that many studies were scientifically inadequate. For March 5th, in 1838, Gustav T. Frisch was born. Frisch and a colleague, Edward Hitzig, were the first to establish the electrical excitability of the brain, and thus to establish correspondence between some brain locations and some motor responses. Also on March 5th in 1934, Daniel Kahneman was born. Along with his colleague Amos Tversky, Kahneman studied the role of cognitive heuristics in judgments of uncertain events. He was awarded the Nobel Prize in 2002. For March 7th, in 1897, Joy Paul Guilford was born. Guilford's contributions were in the areas of quantitative methods in sensation, personality, psychophysics, and attention. Guilford was APA president in 1950. And finally, for March 9th, in 1758, Franz Josef Gall was born. Gall was a medical doctor who identified the functional differences between white and gray matter in the brain. He later developed his suspicions about the relation between head shape and personality into a systematic organology, later called by his assistant Spurzheim, phrenology. Thank you.
that's it for this episode of This Week in the History of Psychology. We would love to hear your comments on the show. You can email us at twithop, that's the initials of This Week in the History of Psychology, T-W-I-T-H-O-P at YorkU, Y-O-R-K-U dot C-A. We would like to thank York University for hosting the program, as well as Michael Guimar for his technical assistance, and especially Warren Street and the American Psychological Association for their website, Today in the History of Psychology, which we use for research and from which we sometimes quote directly. This Week in the History of Psychology is the sole property of Christopher Green. The opinions expressed on This Week in the History of Psychology are not necessarily those of Christopher Green or of York University. 